Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Hi everyone, I'm Simon Mundy. This is Don't Turn With The Score, bringing you life lessons from sport and beyond. Now, had you noticed? Of course you had. The Olympics is due to get underway in Tokyo this week. And with that in mind, who better to chat to than one of Team GB's greatest ever athletes, Colin Jackson, the man who held the world record in the 110 meters hurdles for over a decade. At the Olympics, he was red-hot favourite to win gold at Barcelona in 1992, but he eventually finished seventh, which brings us to this week's theme, the danger of complacency. And Colin has lessons aplenty to share on the subject and much more besides. I can also confirm that his reputation as one of sport's nicest men is spot on. Now, I know I have a few listeners who are part of Team GB, so I would like to dedicate this episode to you guys. We're all cheering you on from home. Good luck, and Colin's words of wisdom might just help you out come competition day. And for the rest of us who aren't in Tokyo for the Games, Colin's life lessons are universally applicable. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Colin Jackson, how are you? I am very, very well indeed. Thank you very much for having me on board. This is fantastic. You are, among many things, you're a British athletics legend, double world champion, Olympic silver, world record stood for a decade. Olympics aside, Colin, your record compares with any British athlete, doesn't it? I guess, yeah. (laughs) You know, I've done... 
I think I've done all right in the world of sport. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I wouldn't exchange. You know, people always say to me, "Oh, would you exchange your world record for the Olympic gold medal?" Well, uh, I said, "You know what? What was to be was to be." So I am not going to complain to be a world record holder. Um, you know, absolutely. It's going to be no complaints whatsoever. To to actually state that you're the best on on the planet for that particular moment in time. Um, or for a long time is <laughs> very long time is, uh, is something I think that I can embrace and 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 I can sleep at night with that knowledge. <laughs> you know what, Colin, I'm I'm happy for you about that fact, and there are lessons to take from that, and I'm really keen to dig into that. But I really mm. admire that Kesara Sarah, that kind of acceptance and all that kind of stuff. But I'll tell you another thing, Colin, you're described as one of the nicest guys in sport. How true is that? Because the reason I ask is, right, sporting success of the kind that you enjoyed can go to your head, can't it? I mean, I know that you will know there have been athletes who perhaps you've seen that happen to. Was there ever a risk of that happening to you? And how did you stop it from inflating your ego? Well, I, I really want to answer that question with a question to you, say, why would the success need to go to your head? I don't quite understand the necessity. I, I, I completely agree with that. And I think that that question, my answer yeah. to that question is it doesn't need to, right? However, yes. I'm going to throw a question back at you though, right? <laughs> is that in sport and other fields, business, broadcasting, right? You, you've done sport and broadcasting, mm-hmm. right? So you've yeah. heard of the word in broadcasting talent, right? Yes, of and course. People yeah. get treated a bit differently, okay? <laughs> and in sports, champions get treated a bit differently and it can go to people's heads. And I agree with you. There's no reason that it should because I'm sure you've seen it go to people's heads, right? Yeah, yeah no, you're right. You know, and I, I'm you know putting your leg a little bit in that sense, thinking... But why? Because I did see it, yeah, on numerous occasions. But you know, when I when I kind of came to the came to the top of, of, of my game and was allowed to be treated um, special, <laughs> special, <laughs> um, I really didn't take up the offer. So there'd be offers like you know when you come, you arrive at the airport, you get a private car to pick you up, and you've arrived with the rest of your teammates and you kind of get whisked away in a car and you're all going to the same place while everybody else is piling in the bus. It was like, do you know what? Don't waste your car. I'll go with everybody else. I travel with them. I know them all. I don't understand what the big deal is. I don't need to be, you know, chauffeured around in in, in that sense. So I never really, I guess, looked for it because I always felt it wasn't necessary um, you know, to for, to make me perform well, certain things that, that that did help, and when success came, would think like just getting a single room where you could just do your own thing that did help my performance. So that if you're paying me the big bucks to be a star, then I need those type of things um, to help my performance to be a strong one. Um, but in no sense was I, you know, once that was kind of established from there on in, I never felt there was ever any. Um, I pull any diva strokes or and anything like this. But also I think because my sister was quite a successful actor in her own right as well, I wasn't outstanding in the household. So there were people that were doing pretty well themselves um, that were there in the house. So I, I couldn't ever, I guess, try to act like I'm the big I am because I definitely wasn't. <laughs> when you did start, 
for example, dominating in the hurdles and when you were the world record holder, when you were clearly the world's number one, did people start treating you differently? Oh, um, I I think um, I was really quite insular. So I only kept the, 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 the same people around me all the time. So they didn't treat me any different because they were the people that were there from the very beginnings. Uh, and so I didn't really um, have to experience it too much. You know, you cross the line, you go on the lap of honor, you wave, you pick up your kit bag, you go in with, and you hang out with your same mates. So right. I didn't ha- and I didn't train that much at home in the UK. I was a lot of time in Australia and in Florida and down in the south of France training. So, you know, even the, the off times, I were, it was training times, really. I was, I was away, so I wouldn't have experienced too much of, of that. So I think, I guess, that, that's, I guess that's lucky, right? Because yeah, I'm not that, that, that probably is then. lucky. That yeah. probably is lucky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, okay, let's go back. So when it comes to sporting talent, you were blessed, weren't you? So what was it? <laughs> Welsh cricket team nearly, county football, School rugby, school basketball. And that's before the athletics, right? Yeah, yeah. Which of those were your favourites? Cricket. Cricket was your favourite. And you nearly, you nearly made the Welsh team, right? Yeah, over athletics, cricket. Yeah, it was cricket was what I wanted to be a star in, not athletics. No. Yeah. So what, bowler, batter, all-rounder? What were you? I was all-rounder, yeah. Well, so I opened a bowling and bat number three oh. or bat number four. So, really? yeah. I was decent to both. <laughs> had you been picked for the Welsh national cricket team, because I know you went to the selections, didn't mm-hmm, you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Had you been picked for that, would your trajectory have been completely different? Yeah, it would have been sliding doors. So, you know, I, I would have I would have just just focused on my cricket. I liked it. I loved it. I loved the whole pace of cricket. I loved the fact that I could do like, you know, odd things when it came to bowling. I could move the ball in the air particular ways. And I remember one time when the umpire, <laughs> uh, when I was playing for Glamorgan, when the umpire said to me, um, show me how you hold that ball. Because he couldn't believe how I was moving the, with the, moving the ball. And I was like, oh, no, I just hold it like this. You know, you don't tell him how you're holding the ball. Don't tell him how you swing your arm. Oh, I just hold it like that. He was like, Okay, okay. Well, um, so I kind of loved the challenge of cricket as well. And um, maybe that's the reason I ended up doing hurdles, because I loved obstacles, you know, trying to get (laughs) a batsman out. They were an obstacle to me winning or taking a wicket. So I wanted to take their wicket stumps out, or if that's not going to work, they're going to have to defend their head, which means I'm most probably going to catch a top edge somewhere. So I'll get them out caught. So... I Either way, this. I felt I was going to, they were having it. <laughs> Did you feel hard done by that you weren't selected? Should you have been selected? Yeah. One of the reasons I ended up not going um, to cricket, because I felt cricket uh, back in that day, there was a was very much a racist system that I was kind of up against. And um, I was the captain of our, our team, our national team, uh, sorry, our, our, our school team. And we had five people going in for the trials to go to the squad. So, Kind of, I was the captain of our team, and four got in, who were white, and the the captain and the sole black member of the team did make it through, and and I couldn't quite understand that I was not good enough, you know that definitely wasn't the case. You were better than the other four. Oh, for sure, for sure, for sure. 
that's not, not even a doubt. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I could bowl better than I can certainly bat better than them. So even if they just took me on one, they didn't have to take me as a bowler or as a batter or do take me as an all-rounder. Not necessary. Uh, and that was the first time I really felt, okay, do you know what? If these people... Um, the only way I can get success is by these type of people, then I don't want to be in that sport. So I then really said, right, the only way I can make it then is in a sport where my hard work, my commitment, my focus yeah. um, takes me to the top of the game. So I was just like, you know what, let's do some athletics. You must have felt incredibly hard done by though you know the sport you love the sport obviously I mean as you've illustrated with the way you've talked about it the sport you really had such a feel for to be mm. overlooked at that time it must have been a real low blow yeah it, it, it is and I think lots of the times when you what people may not understand is when you face some kind of racism in that sense in in that in particular way you feel embarrassed um, for yourself. So you so personalise it. You, you take feel, it in. Yeah, and you generally feel embarrassed. That is like, oh, gosh. They bring to an attention a part of you that wasn't, um, that, yeah, you know you're black, but... It wasn't um, a thing. It, yeah, I don't, go, I, don't, I don't quite get it. Why are you rubbing that in my face? You know, kind of thing. And so it was, um, that was kind of the only ugly time in sport that I really felt. But I got rid of it quickly by going into a sport that was far more accepting. Um, you know, yeah. there was, um, you know, the team that was there that was successful. Um, they kind of looked like me. They, they sounded like me. They weren't like as polished as me, but hey. <laughs> but as nice as you. <laughs> <laughs> but no, all joking aside, you know, you know what I mean? And when you can see it, you can be it. And so I saw champions who looked like me. So I thought I believed that I could be like like them. I could be a champion. When you look at it and on, on, on true reflection, um, would I have been as successful in cricket? Potentially, yes. But the problem is, you can imagine, I could have ultimately faced that racism a little bit further down the line, which means I would have missed the boat for athletics. So I would have missed... You know, the fact that I, yeah. I met a coach that could see me all the way through, we live 40, 40 minutes drive from my house. I would have missed the interaction with training partners who were so important to, to get me out of my house every single day to make sure I was going to train. Um, those are the type of things potentially could have I could have missed if I'd have invested maybe three more years in the in, into cricket and then suffered the, the racism, yeah. which then I would have just, yeah, everything would have been lost. Anyway, right, so let's turn our attention now to your athletics career. So the Commonwealth's 1986, right? So yeah. that's the first time you medaled at a big competition. Yeah, ways, yeah, yeah. And your goal was silver medal. You thought, right, this guy is going to beat me, but equally I'm better than everyone else. Yeah. So can you just talk me through that experience and actually then how you felt on achieving that? Well, you know, I arrived in at the uh, Edinburgh Commonwealth Games in 1986 as the world junior champion and Britain's number one. And um, I was really, I was 19 and everybody had, um, had read or heard about this young 19-year-old boy from Wales who was doing so many phenomenal things as a junior, winning world junior titles, et cetera, et cetera. But I'd not been announced on really on the global stage, right, in, in that I could potentially be a global star of athletics. And the Commonwealth Games was my first opportunity to take on some of the best hurdlers in the world. Uh, and Mark McCoy from Canada was the defending champion. And I, I remember when I... I lined up in my heat. I strolled the heats, and um, he came up to me after, and he said, well, "You're the real dealer." And, and, <laughs> and, and I was just kind of like, 
Yeah, well, you know, I'm just a 19-year-old kid, right? I'm just here to have some fun. But when I went on the line, you know, I knew Mark was better than me as a as an athlete in that sense. I was 19, but like you said, I knew second best was the most important thing for me. But the problem is sometimes when when you say to people, I'm I only going to shoot for a silver medal, they feel like you've got a really defeatist attitude. You're just settling. And but I wasn't settling. I've always been realistic. And I felt that was a realistic target for me. If Mark made a mistake, if I wasn't in silver medal position, then I couldn't take the gold medal. So, you know, I had to make sure I was good enough to, to do what I was capable of doing. And, uh, and uh, you know, as it turned out, Mark did win and I got the silver medal. But I ran faster than I'd ever ran before. I ran a wind day to 30.42. And that was like, um, at the time, if it had been a legal wind, it had been a new British senior record. So you can imagine it was kind of like, okay, this is pretty cool. I'm a, just a meter off the one of the best hurdlers in the world. And that kind of literally set me up from um, that I was a, a, a real candidate. Um, and then a couple of months later, I went to Zurich, the Weltklasse, um, that same year. And I was taking on all the top hurdlers in the world, from the world champions, Olympic champions, all. And uh, I was absolutely petrified is the only word I can say. I'm this 19-year-old kid who two years ago was watching all these lot competing at the World Championships and, you know, and Olympic Games a year before or two years before uh, in Los Angeles. And now I'm going to take on these guys. And I remember when I went into the blocks, my legs were shaking. I was so nervous. <laughs> and, and when the gun went, I literally just ran blind. I just took off the blocks. I just kept going as fast as I possibly could. And Greg Foster, the, the world champion, was the only person to beat me. I think it was that then everybody goes, okay, so this kid's the real deal then. He's come to a big high-pressured race and kicked the butt off most of the hurdles <laughs> that were there. So that anxiety that you felt, your legs were wobbling, because I think a lot of people in, let's say, pressure situations or situations where they have to perform, we all feel that anxiety. Some people are like, oh, I hate how this feels, right? Uh -huh. and, it's, and it's often a little uncomfortable. But actually, do you think it enabled you to run even faster? Yeah, you most probably already gathered that I'm a little bit of a thinker. Uh, and, <laughs> and so um, I would always say to myself, this is not. Uh, an unusual position. I have done 110 meters from these starting blocks how many times already in my life? So I'm not taking myself really out of anything that's a comfort zone. I should be very familiar to this. So I could quite quickly talk myself into a position where I felt strong and comfortable. So I don't think to myself, oh, this is odd and I don't think I can yeah. do this. Um, I do the complete opposite. And I think that's um, a real blessing, but it never gives me, you know, I, I don't become fearful of taking on any challenge then because I feel once I've prepared for the challenge, then I'll give the best I possibly can give. And that, again, is one of the important strategies that, that I would use to, um, to get myself through anything, any challenge. That even and, I and, today, yeah. you know? and those feelings, those feelings of anxiety, I remember Michael Johnson saying he actually missed those feelings mm. of you know being in the cool room before mm. a, a major final or whatever because actually that adrenaline essentially which is making your legs wobble is also going to make you go faster so welcoming those feelings we can learn to befriend them 
it, yeah, it's important a way of that you do. No, and it is important that you do. And I think that sometimes is the difference between champions and people who fail under those really crucial moments is that you learn to handle the nerves well. And if you handle the nerves well, they are very much your friend, you know. I remember you mentioned there about Michael MJ. I mean, we've had this discussion on numerous occasions. And I used to say to him, I hated going into the courtroom. I hated it with a passion. And he was like, why? He goes, that's the best bit of it for me when everything's <laughs> And I'll be like, MJ, let me tell you, if you've got 10 hurdles to go and face on the track, um, seven people who want to take your head off as well in the same terms, you, you wouldn't be so confident going out there on the track, even if you're the best in the world. Because I know one centimeter drop of an ankle means I can go from first to fifth in a moment. And it's not so easy to, to claw your way back to the front when you make those kind of minuscule mistakes. Yeah. I tell you, I, I, I said to him and Linford Christie, you two are lucky that I didn't take up 400 or 100 because I take your heads <laughs> off all the time. <laughs> I mean, that, that is the thing about hurdles. There's so much that can go wrong. And when I was doing my research, a really valuable lesson that I think anyone can apply from your approach was you identified a couple of areas that you could improve in. Your speed on the flat and your start. Now, rather than be like, okay, I'm going to work on this, you thought, right, Who's the best at this? <laughs> Linford Christie and that McCormack fella. You yeah, yeah, right? yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And you went to them and mm -hmm. said, can you help me? Right. And mm -hmm. they did. And mm -hmm. I just think this is such a valuable lesson because we often think that reaching out to people, oh, they don't want to hear from us. They're going to say no or whatever. And therefore, as a result, people don't do it. But you were like, you know, what have I got to lose? And it made a huge difference for you. So I just think there's a really valuable lesson there for anyone, athletics or otherwise. Yeah, I think, you know, to be brave to ask um, people to help you to achieve the ultimate that you can achieve, I see no reason in, in asking. They can only say no. And if they say no, well, you haven't lost anything. You're exactly the same position you were in before. So you, you, you've not lost anything for asking the question. But, you know, identifying your weaknesses and working on them to achieve greater success. You know, I mean, that question happened after I won the Olympic silver medal. I asked my all-time hero, Daley Thompson, what I could do. Ah. And he, that was the advice he gave me. Seek out people who have the same kind of commitment uh, as you, who want to achieve as much as you, but also are better than you at these particular things you need to, to improve. And then that will help you through. And I took that advice. And um, yeah, was brave enough to ask and they all came on board. And I think as a trio, we all benefited. It wasn't just a one-way traffic, you know? I mean, I benefited from Linford learning sprinting technical skills. And, you know, my, my, my start improved by working with Mark McCoy and vice versa. Linford's start improved by working myself and Mark. And then Mark got better technically from working with me. So it wasn't all one-way traffic. You know, it was very much a, a shared experience. And, and all of us were very successful in our own rights of working together strongly as a team. Mm. And even going back to speaking to Daly, though, because like mm. you say, he's your hero, right? Yeah. And I, I think the story goes, doesn't it? You rock up with your silver medal. That's right. Knock on his door. <laughs> he takes one look at the medal and says, well, why don't you finish the story? <laughs> Daly, he don't change. Let me, <laughs> I'll just start with that. He doesn't change, that man. But he said, um, uh, I was 21. I just won an Olympic silver medal, as you mentioned. And I thought my all-time hero is in 
in the, the team with me. So if I ever have an opportunity to announce myself, it's right now whilst he's there. And so um, I knocked on his door and he eventually opened the door and there I was standing in front of him and I said to him, um, can I show you what I won? So I, I showed him this beautiful, shiny silver medal that was in a, a lovely purple velvet box. And Daley took one look at the medal. He looked at me. He looked back at the medal and he said, I did realize they made Olympic medals in that color. <laughs> right? And you just think, <laughs> as a 20-year-old, you're like, oh, I thought this was all right. <laughs> and he was like, no, 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 Joe, come in, come in, come in. And of course, you know, he was already, he'd already won two Olympic gold medals. He was world champion. He was Commonwealth champion, European champion, world record holder. He was everything any athlete wanted to be. He had his own show, TV show in the US. He was a cop, you know, he was, he was global. He yeah, was yeah, Usain yeah. Bolt of the time. Yeah, so yeah. when he was giving you any words of advice, um, you took them. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so when Daly mentioned it to me, I was like, okay, I think he's right. This is the way we need to. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Did you do it? But I just think that whole attitude of seeking people out, because like, even it, took, it would have taken bravery on your part to go and speak to Daly, right? He's yeah. your hero. And our minds can easily go, oh, don't do that. They won't want to speak to us, like I said. But I just think whatever walk of life you're in, 
seeking people out, having that attitude of, okay, look, I can ask, they can always say no. Mm. I think people feel there's a sense of failure and you don't like failing that much in, 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 the, in the real world. So they think if they go and approach somebody to seek advice, it feels like I'm not good enough for what I'm doing or what I, I say I'm going to do. And I think there's that fear factor that people kind of put on themselves instead of actually understanding the world is actually full of quite decent people, yes, yes. many of us who are more than willing to give a kind word of advice um, to help them a, a, along the way. You know, and, and that's one of the things why I really, really adore mentoring um, some of the young athletes that I do, because I mm. just love being able to give them a couple of words of wisdom that you mm. feel will make them better, will put them at ease, will help them to perform. It's the best job ever. And, you know, yeah. if I feel if I was put on this planet to to change the life of one or two people by making a certain statement that's made them rethink, refocus, then my job on this earth is done. I can yeah. leave happy, you know. I truly believe that, you know, what goes around comes around. Mm. And if you put out good causes, you will get those good causes, good causes back. And don't think that you deserve good causes just because you put them out. You know, that's not the case. I feel what's due to you will come. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and also, I think, do you know, what? I've, something I just picked up on is that you said about, you know, the world is full of nice people and good people. And actually, I think having that attitude makes you experience the world the world seems nicer with that attitude it sort of conforms <laughs> to what your view of the world is it seems to yes me. yeah yeah and you know i always ask people uh, i'm giggling now because i the amount of people i always say to them how many bad people you know and they go well i don't know any well i go well there you go if you don't know any and i don't know <laughs> ask people how many bad people they know and yeah. you see and once you realize that there's actually not that many really mm. bad people on this planet, then you will be happy to embrace the good, positive sides of life. And for me, always, that's the important thing. Really be positive. Now, listen, I've got to talk to you about 92. Oh, yeah. So mm -hmm. the lesson, again, that, that can come from this. So let's just set the scene. So there you are, 92, burning up the hurdles scene red hot favorite to yeah. win gold you've already yeah. got a silver medal in your pocket from four years earlier when you know you were still relatively inexperienced you go out for the first round you walk over the finishing line and still clock the fastest time of the whole competition yeah. so it was like this guy is gonna absolutely walk it now yeah. why don't you pick it up from this point <laughs> <laughs> okay wow so i had this dream i always dreamt that if i was going to be good enough i want to win the olympic title and break the world record exactly at the same time that was be it that would be the ultimate for me and that it would be the ultimate nothing would ever top that and so i i did the first round and as you say um i literally walked across the, the finishing line around 13.10 which is kind of like I think it's one of the fastest ever's first round openers. And I was literally jogging and I giggled to myself thinking, I am going to annihilate the world record in, in the final. And I just knew I had that potential because um, when I'd done those type of races before, I'd always run a little bit. If I ran through the line properly, I'd run like two meters quicker and that would have been easily the world record. So I was ready, but I didn't bother warm up for the second round because my mind was already down the road of the final. So I remember saying to my, my, my coach at the time, he's like, well, I'm just chilled because he said to me, what are you going to do to warm up? And I was like, well, nothing. I mean, I'm in Barcelona. It's like 35 degrees. It's roasting hot. I don't need to really do anything to keep warm. And my coach said to me, um, 
complacency, um, there's a tendency that when you are complacent, uh, that it'll, you will get bitten on the backside, basically. I'll summarise that. He used to cover different words than that, but, <laughs> that, 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 that's what he basically summarised, saying that, you know, complacency has a tendency to bite you on your butt. So you stand there and sit there and don't bother warm up and then he kind of did a lecture. I was like, listen, I got it covered. Don't worry yourself. Anyway, when I lined up for the second round, got the blocks really well, nice and sharp, ready to go, ready to put my foot down on the gas. And when I started to put my foot down on the gas, of course, you're getting closer to the hurdles and I smashed one of the hurdles with my trail leg and, and it just made me completely twist. And that rotation ended up tearing my left oblique. And that was basically my dream of becoming an Olympic champion and world record order done because I could barely breathe, never mind run. And I couldn't tell my coach because he kind of already said to me, ha, complacently, he's going to bite you on your backside. And he was right. And the last thing you want to do is make a coach feel that they're right, right? (laughs) So you get through to the semi-final and I was in agony. And I told Mark McCoy, who was my training partner at this stage now, and he knew I wasn't very well as well. And I was like, you know, you have to do it for us as a team because I literally can't do it. And he was trying his best. He was working. He was stretching me out. He was literally trying everything for him to get me fit, to get out there and run. And, and, I, and I just knew it wasn't going to happen. So when I lined up for the final, I was, words is anxious is not, it doesn't have, any bearings on. I was nervous. I was petrified. I, I couldn't do my basic routine to set myself into the blocks because I had a quite a standard routine. And when people go back and they watch the 92 Olympics, they then realize, oh gosh, yeah, he is. He doesn't do what he normally does um, in preparation to the race. And I remember thinking, God, please, Lord, let there not be a false start because I'm not sure if this, you know, the side of my body can take it. And we, we do have a false start. And I found that it's kind of Hugh T, my teammate, who has a false start. And um, and Hugh was like, you know, <laughs> um, me being a gruff Colin, I was like, you know, why do you have the false start? A little bit like that. And Hugh was like, well, you know, I wasn't even supposed to be in the British team, never mind being an Olympic final. And the only way they would have mentioned my name on the TV is if I made it through to the final, right? And I was like, oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah, I'm trying to win a gold medal, and, and you're having a false start because you want to be mentioned on the telly. Dear Lord. But, you know, it, that in itself, that one little statement taught me a lesson because I realized then that the Olympic Games is not just for us as the, as the, as the gold medal contenders. Every single person is on an Olympic adventure and you've got to respect whatever their adventure is. They, they, their place in, 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 in the lineup in the field is, is as valid as yours. So stop being such a, a jerk and let the man enjoy his, because I felt the way I felt was because I was injured. So I was kind of putting all my woes on, on that one situation, which was not the case. Anyway, as I settled into the blocks then for the second time and, Gun goes and Mark absolutely rips out the blocks as he normally does. And I was doing okay for the first three hurdles. And then all of a sudden, my left oblique just literally gave up on me and everything just fell apart. And I started hitting hurdles. I was struggling to get myself back in. At one stage, I thought I'm going to stop because this is pointless. But then I thought, God, I can't stop an Olympic final, can I? 
And so I picked myself, you know, up and I started to run again. And all of a sudden, like, I started closing down people then, going past people, not just closing them down, going past people. And as I was approaching the final hurdle, there was only Mark really in front of me. I thought, oh, my God, if I could just clear this hurdle, at least I'll get a medal. And I ended up smashing it again. And I literally staggered, staggered across the finishing line. And I was absolutely devastated. You can imagine my yeah. dream of becoming Olympic champion and world record had vanished. My training partner, the person I invited to help me win the gold medal, wins the gold medal. Um, and he wins a gold medal in a time that was three hundredths of a second slower than I ran in the heat when I was walking. walking. So you can imagine um, that feeling of sheer like embarrassment, devastation. There was all sorts of thoughts I was going there. And then realizing I was thinking I most probably would never have this opportunity again to, to be in an Olympic final truly at the top of my game. Um, so, yeah, it was so, so, so frustrating for me. And uh, and I was right. I never got to an Olympic Games again in the same kind of, the same kind of physical shape as, um, as I was in that particular Olympic Games when I arrived. How did you come to terms with what happened? How long did it take you to come to terms with what happened? When I won the world championships the following year. Right. And, yeah. and that's no lie. I mean, um, you know, there's parts of your brain that deal with trauma in that sense. And every morning, uh, every, I mean, every time I went to bed, the last thought I had was, was seeing Mark running away from me in, in the Olympic final. And every time I woke up, that was the first thing that, that came into my mind. So it, it, all that changed one year later after I broke the world record and, and became the world champion for the first time. And that was the only time it, it, it changed. Up until then, that was the only thought process yeah. that was going in my head. So 93 Stuttgart, when you smashed the world record, that was it. You were expunging the ghosts of Barcelona, essentially. Yeah, it took that whole year. And, that's it. and even then I was terrified because I got injured not long before. I damaged my back just before that championship. So now I was thinking, this is just so unfair. Cursed. What have I done wrong? <laughs> yeah. So wrong that like, you know, I'm kind of, oh, man. And I pulled out to a race Zurich um, world class just before the world championships um, because my back was just killing me. And it, it, staying on caution, I guess, was the right thing to do because I was able after a couple of days to return to training and then get myself ready to, to, to break the world record in Stuttgart. And it was interesting. We compare, you know, athletes are always comparing statistics. And my statistics going into the world championships in Stuttgart was far, far worse than my statistics going into Barcelona. I was in much better shape going into those Olympics. So just in terms of perhaps a life lesson then, or advice that you would give to anyone, again, not just in athletics, but in, in any walk of life, what you can take from what happened in Barcelona in 92? What advice would you give for anyone? Even if you're on the top of the game, remember the job's not done until it's done. Those words that Malcolm said about complacency as a tendency to bite you on the backside, remember those words. Uh, never, ever, ever become complacent and just rest on your laurels and think you're good enough. Uh, it's not true. You're good enough when the job is done. Fantastic advice, Colin. Now, I just want to have a quick word with you about next summer's Commonwealth Games that are due to take place in Birmingham. So the 2022 Games. 
And we're obviously very close to the Tokyo Olympics. And unfortunately, it looks like next to no spectators are going to be able to be there to watch the athletics action and all the other sports that will be taking place, which will make it a very different experience, not least for the athletes. But with a bit of luck, things will be much more back to normal in time for the Birmingham Games here next summer, 2022. And I know you're doing your bit to promote the Games and as well to encourage people to sign up to be volunteers. And I remember from when I was sports reporter for Radio 1, the difference that the volunteers made at both London 2012, the Olympics, and also the Glasgow Commonwealth Games in 2014. And they really did make a difference in terms of how much they were enjoying themselves, which was then passed on to the people that were visiting, the, the people with tickets every day. And then obviously that just made the atmosphere amazing for the athletes as well. So what's your take on next summer's Commonwealth Games, how it's going to be, and the volunteering aspect of it and getting people to volunteer? I think COVID in itself, this would be, you know, the biggest, um, I guess, post-COVID event that we're holding here in the United Kingdom, the Commonwealth Games in 2022. So, I mean, that excites me in itself. You know, fingers crossed that we can have crowds back to the level that we were used to pre this pandemic. And, you know, the fact that we're going to have as we describe the volunteers, you know, the Commonwealth Collective, they're kind of going to be uh, affectionately known as. I think, again, that's going to be something that's really important because, remember, volunteers make the atmosphere of uh, any major championships. Mm. And, you know, you mentioned yourself in uh, about London and you mentioned about in Glasgow, but it was the people. Definitely. It was the home people that were there that made those championships. And so for us, this is why it's really important that we get the right type of volunteers that will have their smile on their faces and be proud to be representing the West Midlands and the, the Birmingham Commonwealth Games because that's what we, we ultimately want to achieve. People want to leave with a great memory. I mean, my nephew, young black kid from Wales, he's going to be 19 when the Commonwealth Games actually take place. And I said to him, you should, you should go on this volunteering scheme, you know, get out there and be part of the, the collective. And he went, why? And I was like, okay, let me just give you one uh -huh. short reasons why I said to you. I said, you know, you're going for a job interview after you come back from university. And on your CV is the fact that you were a, a Commonwealth Games volunteer. I said, that straight away gives somebody who's interviewing you something to talk about to find out a little bit more about you. And I said, once you do that, it's a very much an icebreaker. And I said, that could make the difference between you getting a job or not getting a job because you see and you show more of yourself in that circumstance. Now, I'm not promising jobs to everybody to become as volunteers, obviously. But, you know, this is the kind of thing that I see that it would help, you know, my because I know my nephew and this will be something that he would definitely be proud of and it will be a talking point forever. It's that memory-making moment. Yeah, here, here. Absolutely. Like I said, a memory I really strongly have from both London 2012 and Glasgow 2014 was the impact that the volunteers had in making the event, both events, extra special for themselves, for the spectators, and then obviously for the athletes who got to soak up the incredible atmosphere. So fingers crossed, we'll get that again next summer. So last few things, Colin, and... You decided to come out as gay in 2017. So relatively recently, you didn't come out while you were competing. So, I mean, you were actually 50 when you came out. But I was interested, how do you think you would have been received had you come out while you were still competing? 
Oh, that's a good question. Um, and I guess the, 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 the reasons why, I guess, yeah. I never, ever wanted a focus to be on my sexuality. I always wanted my focus to be on my performance. So for me, um, my sexuality would have been an intrusion. Um, and I wanted people to remember me for being a great high hurdler. Uh, and that was the only thing that was important to me. So nothing else. I mean, people will tell you who knew me back in the day then. They would say Colin was married to the sport, right? That's the only thing he wanted. That's the only thing he loved, which was the truth. Um, I love training. I love the social environment. I love the competition. I loved coming home and I loved winning medals. So it was, <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of the perfect the mix that I absolutely loved doing more than anything else. And I didn't want anything really to get in the way. So I'm not sure how people would uh, um, approach me because I never thought about it. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't an issue for me that I thought that I oh I was I hide I was hiding this I needed to hide this I need to hide it was never a kind of it never came into no. my in my, in my it, psyche sure because I was doing other stuff that was keeping me occupied I think. So I had a really interesting conversation podcast conversation with your fellow Welshman Gareth Thomas former rugby player early in 2020, so pre-pandemic. And we spoke about lots of things about fear, facing fear. But we also touched on homophobic abuse in football. And Gareth was very much of the opinion that homophobia in football, in the national game, was being ignored or overlooked. Um, the focus has obviously been on racism, and that's really increased since the Black Lives Matter movement. And like I said, we spoke pre-pandemic, so pre-that as well. But Gareth had made a couple of documentaries around the problem of homophobia in football. He'd tried to get the Football Offences Act changed to reflect it. We talked about how still no gay player has felt that he was able to come out. So, yeah, I just want to get your take on whether or not other forms of discrimination, specifically homophobic abuse in football, is being overlooked well, well, you know, as you say, you already mentioned, discrimination is always a problem, right? So discrimination in every level, misogyny is in, in the same bracket in that sense. We shouldn't discriminate, we shouldn't diss, we shouldn't do anything like that. And you know my temperament already, you, as you gather that, that I kind of feel passionate, you can just be nice, you can just yeah. be kind to people. Absolutely. And I don't quite understand why people can't, but yeah, I just yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't get it. <laughs> um, yeah. But I mean, for me, it's, I'm in a really difficult position. I say a difficult position because it's really important to me that um, the Black Lives Matter situation is addressed. That's far more important than sexuality for me. And the reason why I say that is because when you walk into any space or any room, people see you as a black man first. They don't know anything else about you. And so you're discriminated against straight away without even opening your mouth. Right? Mm -hmm. And we need to get rid of that. So it's easier, I guess, to focus on color and race discrimination because you can see it. You can't necessarily see sexuality. So it's hard to kind of work with it in, in, in the same manner. I think one of the things that people got to understand is that people, when, you, when you're born black, you're struggling anyway in this society because you have to do things so much better, so much stronger. Your expectations change and people's expectations of you change along the way as well, you know. So you, you, could, be, you could be black and you go to a, a school and they'll instantly think that you can play sport better than anybody else. 
well, actually, you may be a linguist or want to play a violin, but you're never given that opportunity because people have already put you in a in a pigeonhole of the past, you know? Mm. And so, again, that's why I say it's a little bit difficult for us when already when you're born into this kind of system and, and, and situation. If you're a young, decent black kid that's kind of being mugged, for example, and you don't feel comfortable going to the police, well, where are you going to go? So... I think this is one of the things we you, people must understand that living as a black person is difficult and all they strive for is just equality. You don't want anything else. You don't want anything better. You don't want anything more. You just want equality. And equality um, would just set you up well. It would just allow your aspirations to grow. And then I wouldn't be an athlete today, would I? I'd be a cricketer and I'd have been the happiest lad in the land. <laughs> Absolutely. Triple Ashes winner. Absolutely. You know it. You know but ultimately, we want to get to a place, don't we, where discrimination isn't an issue. You know, you want yeah. to be in a place where not only are there footballers that are out, but it's not even a big deal. Ultimately, with all these things, you know, with skin color, it's like we want to make it as irrelevant as hair color. Yeah. Like you said, it's not tolerance. It's you want to make it irrelevant. Right. And yeah. I just think for football, when it comes to sexuality in particular, that would be a sign of a quantum leap forward. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, someone asked me about this um, recently before. They said, oh, if you were if you're a gay football, would you come out? And I went, no. And they went, oh, God, that's a bit harsh. <laughs> Why are you so that? I said, because you know what? I'd want to just concentrate on my game as a professional footballer. I don't want people interviewing me about my sexuality when I just scored a hat-trick. Yeah. That's what I'm there to do. I'm employed to score a hat-trick. So I wouldn't want people to be talking about my sexuality when I'm an ultimately a great performer. And so that would be one of the reasons why I wouldn't come out. Maybe I'd come out after I finished the game, but during, no, because I don't want the focus to be on that. I'm in the sport to do the sport. I totally take that point and I totally agree with that point. But I think it'd be nice to get to that point where it's just like, like, like you say, it's not a thing, right? And not, it, yeah, but you need not, to go through those stages first. It's going to take time. We know it's going to take time in that sense. And I think I was talking at a couple of committee meetings, um, you know, BAME committee meetings that are linked with the LGBT. And I said, my ultimate goal is that we're not sitting here. Yeah. And yeah, they were yeah. like, what? I was like, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. if we're not sitting here, that means everything is hunky-dory. Absolutely. And, and life is sweet. So Absolutely. Our real job is to make these committees, these events irrelevant. They shouldn't be happening. And once we've done that, we know we've made it. I think that is spot on and what a beautiful place to finish. Colin Jackson, <laughs> it's been a real pleasure talking to you. There's been some really, I think, valuable lessons that you've been able to share and, and I've just really, really enjoyed it. So thank you very much indeed for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode and I do have another Olympic themed one up my sleeve for next week and you won't want to miss that. In the meantime, subscribe to my newsletter at simonmundy.com where this week I've been elaborating on the mouth taping that's prompted a flurry of questions following last week's episode and I'm also exploring the concept of amor fati or love your fate. I'll be posting some tips on Instagram too at simonmundy. Until next week, have a good one.